0: So tonight, Brie Golden's going to be sharing with us, and uh, she's phenomenal. It's going to be so awesome. So we're going to be in John chapter 2. You guys can open up your Bibles. John chapter 2. We're at the very beginning of our journey through this incredible gospel. John the mystic. John the Jewish sage. Writing in all these layered ways as he guides us to see Jesus. John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Bree, would you come on up and we're going to pray for you? Let's welcome Bree. (laughs) We'll just pray for you. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Bree and her gifts for our community as she shepherds us tonight. May each of us have a sense of that holiness and purity that you grant us. Where there's water tonight, turn it into wine, and let there be a fullness of joy for each person that you've brought here. We worship you tonight, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank
1: you. Hi, neighbors. So yeah, my name's Bree, and if um, we have not met, come find me after service. I'd love to say hi and get to hear part of your story and see it put a name to a face. So we're going to jump right in. In the late 15th century, St. Ignatius of Loyola, He developed a way of reading scripture that not only engaged the mind with words, but the whole heart, mind, body experience via the imagination. He called it imaginative reading and imaginative prayer, and he taught his students to live into the text. They would read the passage and spend some extended time in the passage, sitting with it, imagining themselves in the scene as it unfolded. They were to hear the sounds and smell the smells, and just let the text become alive to them. They were to imagine themselves as different characters within the story, interacting with the other characters, especially Jesus. So in doing this, they experienced a fuller and richer application of the passage. And we want to do that very same thing tonight as we look at John 2, um, this first recorded miracle in Cana of Galilee. So I'm just curious, how many of you here tonight, with just a raise of hands, have heard of the practice of imaginative prayer reading? Awesome. Okay, so if this is new for you, or that concept just is new to you, I want you to think about a museum for a minute. Most of us are familiar with um, exhibits or displays in museums. You know, the ones that are set up like a behind a glass wall, or you walk in and it's a room that's all set up. So my favorite ones are the ones with so many details. And as you stand and you take it all in and, and you can see the, maybe the, the time period pieces that they have on or just the artifacts in the room, you feel like you're being sucked into like a time travel experience. So that's basically um, kind of the idea behind imaginative prayer, that we're putting ourselves within the text. So tonight we're going to imagine that we're peering into a glass room exhibit, which is really John chapter 2, where the wedding at Canaan is happening right before our eyes and we're going to take it all in and we're going to let the story become real to us because this is a real story. The wedding at Cana was a real event. There were real conversations and real tensions. Jesus was a real guest at this wedding and barrels of real water became barrels of real wine. John's carefully placed so many details in this text for us to see so many layers after layers, and we need to come in close to see them. So our plan for this evening, it's to immerse in this ancient Jewish, Jewish scene for just a bit, and we're gonna take notice of some of these details. And then we're gonna contemplate how these details matter to us today. Why does this story about an ancient wedding um, in Jewish culture, why does it have any effect on our lives today, February 9th, 2020, in awesome rainy San Diego? So let's remember, as we're working through John this year, Dan has laid out for us a two-fold goal. First, as we experience and believe, as we believe in and experience life in Jesus' name, we want to be learning how to lean deeper into the presence of Jesus, right? Leaning into Jesus, it brings us into a place where we can hear his heart for us, and we hear his heart for others, And as we lean into Jesus, the noise of this world is deafened, right? The lies of the enemy are silenced. They're pushed to the corners of our heart. We hear his voice. We're transformed. Our hearts are awakened. Our desires are reordered. And our identities are made new as we're formed in Jesus. Second, we want to invite others to come and see Jesus with us so that together we can experience this transformation, right? Jesus intends for soul transformation to happen within community. We need each other. We want to be a church where we experience this transformation together. I need you. You need me. We need each other to experience this. So let's take a deep breath in through our bellies and exhale. And we're going to let this passage become real to us. Maybe just close your eyes for a second if you feel comfortable with this. Just thinking about that passage in John chapter two, the wedding, what do you see? What do you hear? Where are the disciples? Where's Mary? Where's Jesus? Where are the bride and groom? I can open your eyes. There are some details that John wants us to see. He's placed them in this in this text for us to notice. And one of the first things we notice is simply that Jesus was invited to this wedding. Jesus is a guest at this wedding. John two two says Jesus, mother, Jesus. Wait, the text says here we go. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. So just simply, they've been invited. Jesus wasn't a party pooper. His presence was requested at a lively hopping party, right? A fun celebration. They wanted him there. Jesus hung out with real people doing real things. He was integrated into his community, and he's been invited to a guest at a wedding for people that he knew and cared about. Next, we see that the bridegroom, or the groom, as we would call him, he has a huge problem on his hands. They've run out of wine. John 2, 3 says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now the customs and cultures at ancient Jewish weddings were different than the customs and cultures of weddings that we have today. For instance, the celebration lasted for days, maybe even up to a week instead of just like hours on a Friday or Saturday evening. This was like a week-long festivity. And another thing is that the groom was responsible for paying the ticket of this wedding. Everything, the food, the wine would have all been on him. So any young men in here ready to get married, excited for that bill that you don't have to pay? So to run out of wine would have been a very big deal. It would have been beyond humiliating, a complete social faux pas, like Twitter feeds blowing up, right? And beyond socially humiliating, in this ancient culture, the host could have actually been sued for a breach of hospitality to his guests if he didn't have enough wine to provide for the week. So he could have been sued for this. So looking closely, we can, we can see that this is a serious situation for this groom. And we see that his honor and his reputation is at stake, and Mary wants to help. And I think it's such a mom thing to notice the um, problems that are brewing behind the scenes at your friend's big party. Mary's feeling concerned for her friends who have a real problem brewing, and she wants to help. So let's look at this interaction between Mary and Jesus. She's aware that her friends have a big problem, and she wants Jesus to fix it. She says to Jesus, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Does this interaction feel slightly confusing or tense, right? Can we agree that when we read this part of the passage, Jesus' words feel a little bit abrupt, maybe even harsh? I mean, certainly it would be considered dishonoring and rude if a son in our culture today were to address his, his mother as woman. There are multiple perspectives on the meaning and tone that Jesus took with his mom in this moment. Some have said that Jesus was rebuking Mary for uh, treating him like he was a genie in the bottle, like you're going to do what I want right now," And that he was angry at her. I struggle with this view because, number one, I don't think that Jesus would have been mad at Mary for wanting to spare her friend's humiliation. It doesn't seem she had an impure motive. And two, he goes on to fix the problem. He does the miracle. So others would say that we shouldn't see any tension in their interaction and that the word that Jesus used to address his mother here, that it's gunai, that it's formal, but it's not intended to be disrespectful or harsh. And I wrestled with this part of our passage for weeks, really weeks. Like, what do you want us to see in this interaction, Jesus? As neighbor's church, what do you want us to see? And one morning after reading the scripture, I had this memory. Um, Both of our sons were very musical and so we grew up they grew up in a house like we had so many instruments violin piano drums You name it, so our house was loud, and there was a lot of um, a lot of music all the time and one of my favorite things was getting to Make dinner every night to the sound of them practicing worship sets especially in high school when they were leading It wasn't just that the music was special or getting to hear them play it was having a bad see view to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and during the season when we'd have friends over for dinner I would always secretly just hope that somehow like spontaneously we'd end up gravitating into the living room around the big piano and like an impromptu worship session would break out right and sometimes I wasn't so subtle and I would Michael come come play that new song you just learned and it wasn't that I wanted to show off my son's talents I didn't want to be like that annoying mom that's like, make your kids perform like circus monkeys. But I was so proud of the anointing that I saw God building and and putting um, over them in their lives. And I wanted others to see what I saw as their mom who got these intimate glimpses into the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I wanted others to be a part of that and to see that, the miraculous and the mundane. So to me... And this is just my my opinion. I feel like Mary was saying to Jesus, do your thing, son. Like, do your thing. I know you can do it. And while I don't believe that Jesus was angry at Mary, I do believe he was giving her a gentle rebuke and a reminder. Not because he was unwilling to help, but because he knew what was coming. He knew what was about to unfold life on earth was about to greatly intensify for Jesus. He'd gathered his disciples, his earthly ministry and fame were about to explode, and the time for the cross was growing near. And while Jesus was Mary's son, ultimately Jesus reported to his Father in heaven. So Mary and Jesus They didn't have a typical mother-son relationship. And in his formality and his answer, Jesus was reminding Mary that he answered to God the Father before her. He was not just her son. He was her Lord. He would be the one to save her soul. And I believe he was distinguishing their relationship. And by telling her that his hour had not yet come, I believe he was reminding her of his higher calling. He had come to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He had come to be her Messiah. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on John, says, Jesus responds in a way that distances himself from Mary's authority, but does not reject the need. Jesus, his heavenly father, not his earthly mother, must determine when his hour is to come and what he is to do until then. Throughout the gospel, Jesus acts only when the father gives him the go-ahead. So when looking at this encounter through that lens, it's actually quite beautiful. Jesus' response to Mary is actually quite beautiful. It's tender. Again, Witherington says, as woman... Mary must work out the tensions between the physical family from which Jesus is disentangling himself and the family of faith. Mary will later enter the family of faith at the cross as an archetypal female disciple, as a woman, but not on the basis of being Jesus' mother. Wow. The last detail that we're going to consider this evening are the barrels of wine the barrels that Jesus chose to put wine in. Our text tells us, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind, used, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. You guys, this is a huge detail to behold. Look really close with me, okay? These ceremonial jars, they were what the Jewish people used for purifying themselves. The text says that. They were very literally large stone water basins. They were used as receptacles for the supply of the water. And it was for the J- Jewish custom or tradition of ceremonial purification. So they would have held around each 20 to 30 gallons of water. This is a lot of, um, a lot of water. But we can't miss this by filling these jars with wine. Jesus is proclaiming something really important here. He's proclaiming to us, there is a new way to be made clean. There's a new way to be made clean. What does the wine that we drink at communion each week symbolize? Right? The wine symbolizes the blood. We read about this in Luke 22, when Jesus is sitting around the table with the disciples at the Last Supper on the night before the cross. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus declared wine to be a symbol for his blood, the blood that he was about to pour out on the cross. So jumping back to this wedding scene at Cana, Jesus filling these jars, these six jars for ceremonial cleansing with wine, it was not coincidental. Jesus was foreshadowing the wine of his blood as the means for purification. So this miracle points to a new way, Jesus. It is the miraculous, redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone that would truly be the method of purification for these Jews and for us today. So looking at all these details that we've laid out, just Jesus being invited, the interaction with Mary, the jars, we can gather some things, right? The groom was in trouble. Mary wanted to help. She wanted Jesus to do it. Jesus performed this outrageous miracle, and he changed the atomic structure of H2O into Cabernet. And the groom, he spared social humiliation, so the party saved So what does this story, this miracle, this sign, what does it teach us? Why is it significant? And what can we walk away with this week as we lean into Jesus in the story? So there's three takeaways from this passage that I want to lay out for us tonight. Are you with me? Number one, Jesus is the way. Jesus is where the miraculous is at. And Jesus is joy. So Jesus is the way. Through the incredible symbolism of the purification jars being filled with wine, John's highlighting for his readers that the old way of purifying oneself through rituals and sacrifices, the water, is being fulfilled with a new way, the wine, which is a symbol of Jesus' blood. And like we talked about with the, the communion, in many ways this passage foreshadows the first communion where Jesus instructed his disciples that bread symbolized his body that would be broken for them, and wine symbolized his blood that would be shed for them. This point, passage points to what's to come. Jesus through the cross is the way." In just a few passages over in John 14:6, Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Jesus' way was both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. He offended people because of his lavish hospitality and joyful inclusivity. No one was bared from drinking wine at this wedding. The poor could drink freely, the slave, the ruler, the ethnic Jew, any attendee who had been invited to this wedding could come partake in the joy. The traditional social barriers of economic status and educational achievements or ethnic backgrounds. They were destroyed by Jesus. Everyone was invited. Have you ever been to a party like this where all kinds of people are invited and there's no, there's no division? This was terribly offensive to a culture built on oppressive social hierarchies. Sound familiar? But Jesus was also offensive because of his radical exclusivity. He declared himself to be the way and the truth and the life, and that no one could come to the Father but through him. Our culture loves Jesus' inclusivity, but it struggles with his radical exclusivity. Namely, that only by practicing his way And by committing our lives to him alone, will we be rescued from death and experience eternal life with him. And this church, the church in general, the greater church struggles with all of this as well. Martin Luther King Jr. said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And neighbors, church, let's be honest, we struggle with these exclusive teachings, sometimes just opting to full on ignore them, right? Listen to this. In 2008, a Pew Research Center study found that more than half of all American Christians believe that at least some non Christian faiths can lead to salvation. Nearly a decade later, so this is last year, a new study has come out that has shown that even among the most traditional groups, In America, significant amounts of people are also rejecting God as described in the Bible. While 80% of all of the Americans surveyed in this new study said that they believe in God, only 56% said that the God that they believe in is the God in the Bible. Friends, there are times when Jesus' words are hard. They're hard. Matthew 7, 13 says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus' words can be hard, but he is the only way. He's the only way for the religious. He's the only way for the unreligious. He's the only way for the churchgoer or for the person who's never stepped foot in a church. He invites all to come to him. He includes all, but but it is contingent on a commitment to him and choosing to submit to his ways above all else. Jesus is the way. He's the way to be made clean. He's the way to the Father. He's the way. And he's also where the miraculous is at. Jesus is where the miraculous is at. And there can be a a temptation when we contemplate these miracles and signs, whether it's back then or even now today, to get so caught up in the actual wonder and the mystery of the signs themselves, the hows and the whats, that we miss the wise, or we can, right? We can miss the purpose of the miracles. But Jesus' miracles are meant to point us to something greater than the miracle themselves. The miracles aren't the stars of the show, Jesus' glory being manifested is. And just as John the Baptist, who we read about last week, pointed to Jesus Christ, the miracles that Jesus performed are meant to do the same. They are meant to point us to Messiah. They're meant to point us to life in his name. When speaking about miracles, the miracles that Jesus performed, John said, and this is John 20, 30 through 31, but these are written That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Just think about this who witnessed the miraculous at this wedding? Who got to see it? Who got to experience being a part of the water turning into wine? The text tells us that the servants knew what happened, but the master of the feast did not know. Intentional or not, he missed it. The text says, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The people who got to witness Jesus' first miracle were those that were closest to him. They were with him. They were literally at his feet like a two-year-old on their mama's ankles. If we want to be partners with Jesus in the miraculous, if we want to be transformed, changed by his glory being manifested, we need to be close to him. That's why we lean into his presence. Many of the wedding guests in Cana experienced the benefits of the miracle, but they completely missed seeing the glory of the one who performed it. They benefited from Jesus, but they missed seeing who Jesus was. I've known many people who want to enjoy the benefits of Jesus, but they struggle in submitting to him. They wanna receive from Jesus, but they struggle to submit to him, to his authority. And friends, I don't know about you, but I long to see the miraculous. Not just because it's amazing to see water turned into wine or to see someone healed, I wanna see those things. I pray to God that we see these things as a church and as neighbors. But I want to see the miraculous not just because of the miracles, but because the miraculous is where Jesus is at. It's where our Savior is. And I long to see my Savior, like the smell of this amazing dinner wafting out of the kitchen, that's drawing everybody in. Experiencing the miraculous, it entices us to come in closer to the creator of the miraculous. He wants to draw you in. He's where the miraculous is at. In our last takeaway for this evening, friends, Jesus is joy. He's joy. Everything in this story points to joy. Everything, wine, a symbol of Jesus' blood was also a symbol of joy. In ancient Jewish culture, water was scarce. Wine was a necessity more than a luxury. It symbolized sustenance and life. It represented joy and celebration, festivity, and it pointed to the abundant blessing of God, his favor. So when Jesus turned the water into wine, John 2, 7, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water and don't miss this, So they filled them to the brim. The jars were filled to full. This is a picture of the abundant joy that's to be found in Jesus. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Jesus longs to fill us to full with the joy of his presence. He longs to fill us to full. And this wedding celebration in the story, it also foreshadows another wedding celebration that's yet to take place. One where Jesus, whose name the bridegroom, will be joined to his church, whose name the bride, and we are invited to this celebration. Neighbors, you and I, we are invited to this celebration, to this wedding feast. Isaiah prophesied about this wedding feast, and he said, on this mountain, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will surely say, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There will be a day when our joy will flow like endless wine and we will commune at a table with Jesus in heaven. This will be a real day, just like the wedding in Cana was a real day. There is a real day coming. It's on the calendar. We don't know the date, but it's coming when we will sit with Jesus. There will be no more sadness or shame, only joy, true, pure joy. In John's account in John chapter 2, he points us to the most joyful day that the earth has known of yet. John says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. The third day. Does the third day ring a bell? On the third day, Jesus was crucified on the cross. He was buried in a sealed tomb. He defied death. He defied sin. He defied shame and every plot and ploy of the enemy to keep us in our graves and to keep us in his in darkness. His light broke through. He conquered the grave, right? And he became our victory. Jesus is joy because ultimately he's our victory. He's your victory, neighbors. He's your victory excited about that. That's joyful. He is our way. He's our Messiah. He's where the miraculous is at and he is our joy. Wow, Jesus, he blows my mind. John 2:11 says, "What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him." Tonight, Neighbors' church. What is our response to seeing the miraculous? What's our response? Jesus' disciples, they saw and they believed. Our response to seeing the miraculous should form and shape our belief in Jesus. So a few questions that we can contemplate this week and tonight as we come to get ready to come to the table this evening. Number one, have I embraced Jesus as the way and the truth and the life? Have I surrendered my life to the only one who can save my soul? And two, if I've accepted that Jesus is the way, am I close to Jesus? Am I following him, chasing him right at his feet, close enough to see and partner with him in the miraculous? And do I know the joy of Jesus? do I live with the joy of third-day reality? He's victorious. So I'm going to pray for us now. Oh, Jesus. You are the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through you. but through love, through mercy. God, you've made a way for us to come to you, to partake in the joy that you have in store for us, God, not only in heaven, but even here on earth. God, I just believe you want to do the miraculous that you're still at work doing it. And we want to come close to you to see and to partner with you, to see your glory manifested, to see people that are in the darkness, God brought into the light. And if there's anyone here tonight, if you're just in a place where you are desperate, desperate for the miraculous of Jesus to touch your life, You're just desperate for something to happen that only He can do. Whether that's freeing you from chains of addiction, or it's healing you from scars of emotional or physical physical abuse, or it's giving you a hope for what's to come, and, and you just need Him to impart something to you tonight. You're desperate for the miraculous of Jesus. I just pray over you, God, right now, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and minister as only you could do. Would you bring your truth to our hearts, God? Would you illuminate places where we're believing lies? Would you cause those lies to fall off in the name of Jesus Christ right now? And we just declare that you are a God of joy, that you're a God of victory, that you have this inheritance for us and we want to step into it. We want to step close we want to be right at your feet just thank you for who you are thank you for who you are thank you for your love thank you for your joy in jesus name